Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Play On Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Hartz. Today we talk with Ali Babich and Christine Hugeta from this season's production of South Pacific. Ali is playing Ensign Nellie Forbush in South Pacific and Ella Delahaye in Charlie's Aunt. This is her first season with the festival. Ali has performed at many other theaters, including the Guthrie Dowling Studio, Shakespeare's Globe, Northern Sky Theater, Backroom Shakespeare Project, Bard Shakespeare, and Optimus Theater. Christine is playing Bloody Mary in South Pacific and Donna Lucia Dalvadores in Charlie's Aunt. This is also Christine's first season with the festival. Christine has performed with other theaters, including Denver Center Theater Company, Colorado Shakespeare Festival, Arveda Center, PCPA Theater Fest, Weathervane, and Lamb's Players. Christine has also performed off-Broadway as Lolita Luna in Dog Eaters, directed by Michael Greif at the Joseph Papp Public Theater. Allie, it's so great to have you here today. Thanks Thank for you. coming in. Thanks for having us. So I would love to start this conversation and just, just hear a little bit about each of your backgrounds and how you ended up at Utah Shakespeare Festival. Maybe start by asking how you each got your start in theater in two hours or less. <laughs> in two hours or less. Um, did you want to go first, Christine? Okay. Um, well, I sort of, I like to say I, I came to the theater uh, via musicals. I was always a singer growing up. Um, and then I, uh, fell into, thanks to my aunt, um, a wonderful program in Milwaukee called, uh, First Stage, which is an outstanding children's theater. And they also have a really great training program. Um, so I participated in that from when I moved to Wisconsin till after I graduated high school. Um, and I learned how old were you when you moved to Wisconsin? 11. Okay. Cool. Um, so I made my debut as the rabbit in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe back in whatever year that was. And, uh, yeah, didn't quit since. Um, I just didn't really discover Shakespeare, though, until high school. And actually, I, um, one of my, like, uh, foundational Shakespeare experiences was actually coming out here uh, to, for the high school Shakespeare competition um, back when I was a senior. Um, and I got to work on a Paulina monologue, and it was awesome. Um, I totally fell in love with what it feels like to perform that text at that level. Um, and then I went to school at uh, University of Minnesota, uh, the Guthrie Theater BFA Actor Training Program. And uh, while I was there, David Ivers came out and auditioned us. Uh, that's his alma mater. Uh, and several video submissions later, uh, here I am uh, enjoying my first season at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. So that's, what's that? Allie Babich in a nutshell, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Christine, tell us about how you got started in theater. I, I Similar to Allie, I had always been a singer growing up. I was a product of karaoke generation. <laughs> my father was, uh, my father is a, a singer and a musician. And so that was always in our family. Then when I got to junior high, uh, I was connected with a school of creative and performing arts. And it wasn't until high school, though, that I was involved. It was the Chula Vista School for Creative and Performing Arts, where a couple of other Famous folk. <laughs> oh yeah, have been to school. Who, um, are Mario, you drop names? Mario Lopez. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Gray Delisle, who is a big uh, voiceover star, and Dee Dee Magno, who has played Kim 
in Miss Saigon on Broadway. Wonderful. And um, I, and there are others, um, but those are the three that I can remember. Let's see. So I remember my freshman year of high school, I auditioned for The Wiz at that SEPA, and I didn't get in. I was crushed. Then I moved away for a couple of years. Um, I had this weird... Um, moving around thing going on in my in my high school even though it had already been pretty weird because I was a Navy brat and so I went to another school in Texas and the first time that I did theater there I played Roxy in Chicago what? yeah it was really really cool and then I did uh, I played a cheerleader in this play called Vanities <laughs> which was which was really cool and and then Finally, I, uh, we went back to the high school that I went to my freshman year and was connected with in junior high, and I was finally much more active in, in the School of Creative and Performing Arts there. Uh, I also did Shakespeare competitions, and I won uh, for doing Lady M. And then I also went to the Thespian Conference, and that was when I first discovered PCPA. And they did this really incredible hybrid performance of R&J and West Side Story. And when I saw them, I was totally blown away, and I knew that I had to go to school there. So that that's where I ended up going to school for my first two years. But also at the same time, I had gotten involved in a local theater in San Diego called Lamb's Players, uh, and they're now based in Coronado, California, and they're doing quite, quite well. Uh, but that's where I got my first professional experience in the theater. So that was sometime in my senior year of high school. And then I went on to PCPA for two years and got some really great training, uh, including with Brad Carroll, who is the director of South Pacific. And uh, I had also worked with Michael Gribben, who's the musical director of our South, wow. South Pacific. And, and I worked with them both in South Pacific at PCPA. <laughs> so. yeah, Michael was involved in that too. Yeah, oh. yeah. Wow. Yeah, so we, we go way, way back. And then after that, I transferred to, well, it wasn't really a transfer because I graduated from PCPA, but I was accepted as a transfer into Boston Conservatory. So I went there for two years and finished up my BFA. And by then, I was totally in love with Shakespeare. So I ended up going to the University of Delaware professional theater training program and I was there I didn't finish out the program but then after that uh, that's pretty much when my professional life started to kick off and I got my first gig at the Denver Center after that and then I guess fast forward to 2005 I guess is that right 2005 and I was working at the Denver Center with David Ivers <laughs> <laughs> so that's when he and I first met, and then fast forward to now. And in that whole, I guess, between 2003 and this year, earlier this year, I'd really taken a, a bit of a break from the theater. I've had, like, uh, little theater projects here and there, but not an, an official comeback to the regional theater. And when I saw the posting for South Pacific, I, by then I was feeling like, yeah, I think it's time for me to come back. So I contacted David and he let me audition and a couple of videos later. <laughs> no, I guess mine was, I had a video, but it took, took a while. Uh, I was able to come here. 
Welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> so you've had some experience with South Pacific before. Have you worked in a production of South Pacific? Never. I really didn't even know the soundtrack all that well until about a year ago. Um, but it's stunning. I, you know, it's sort of a matter of which CDs did I have growing up, and this was not one of them. But I love it, and I, I think I listened to it from the time I had my first audition for this place almost every day until I got the job officially. <laughs> I don't know, sort of a good luck charm, uh, I guess. And also preparation and research in the yes, process. Yes, yes, and it's stunning. I love the score. So, Christine, you play Bloody Mary, and Allie, you play Nellie Forbush. Yes? Yes. Awesome. <laughs> you were looking at me one. like maybe I'd said something wrong, and yeah. I thought, wow, I think I got it right. Um, talk a little bit about each of these characters, and, and maybe think of describing them to someone who's not familiar with this story and not familiar with this musical. So, set whatever context you think you need to set. South Pacific is set in the South Pacific <laughs> during World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a bunch of sailors that are stuck on this island, and then there's a mysterious island across the way called Valley High. And uh, there is a bit of a historical reference. It comes from, uh, a, there's a, a book called South Pacific mm -hmm. by James Michener, where he recounts his time uh, in the Navy in the South Pacific, and there was a mysterious island there. And, and apparently there is an actual mysterious island there, but it's not called Valley High. There are nurses there, and yep. <laughs> there are... Now, so there are islanders there, people who are actually from the South Pacific area. Mm -hmm. Then there are people who came over from Vietnam who came to work for the French planters. And so, and then there are these French planters that are there. <laughs> yep, oh yeah, the back. <laughs> and then, yes, then there are the Americans and the American the American military. Yeah, and what's interesting about this story in, in Mishner's novel, um, he goes into great detail about this, was just sort of the, the boredom that could happen. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, I think he describes it as the endless waiting um, of these soldiers who aren't, in action, but are sort of waiting to be called to action. Um, and so this South Pacific really is about that in-between time and um, how people interact with one another who are from such different worlds and have such uh, constraints as, well, in the military, um, the regular enlisted men um, weren't allowed to interact with officers. So what did the U.S. Navy do but make all the women officers so as to keep a little distance uh, between the boys and the girls? Um, not that that always worked out. But uh, so Nellie, uh, Ensign Nellie Forbush, is um, she's uh, from Arkansas, uh, from Little Rock, Arkansas, and has come, uh, joined the Navy to see the world, really. Um, she's uh, very very naive. Um, she describes herself as a hick, um, which I think is sort of accurate. And what I've really enjoyed exploring with Nellie is she's, she explores, or she, she falls into things wholeheartedly, 100%. Um, and it's really fun in the story to track this very young person's journey of, oh, right, someone has told me that that's true, so I believe it absolutely. And then, Five minutes later, you learn a new piece of information and your entire worldview shifts. 
180 degrees, and then maybe back again 10 minutes after that. It's uh, it's so it's really a, a coming of age story for her, and 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 a way of 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 growing into finding what she believes in instead of what she's been told to be true. Hmm. So there's a part of the the boredom is just finding ways to make more money. So uh, the the folks that come from Vietnam will work for the French planters and they will save up their money and then go back home. And then others uh, will find ways to stay on the island because they find other ways of making money. <laughs> so Bloody Mary uh, has found ways to make money by making grass skirts and uh, real human heads <laughs> and <laughs> boar's teeth bracelets. And... Um, and she's just found a way to do that. She's she's a, a, a an, an island entrepreneur, <laughs> <laughs> and she comes into cahoots with one of the enlisted guys, Billis, and they work together to sell some grass skirts, and that's a lot of fun. <laughs> There's also an aspect which I think is, I guess, is pretty pretty common. Perhaps I find that it, it's it's common in certain Asian cultures, but it's also, I also see it a lot in just any culture, really, which is just trying to find a good uh, mate for your child. And so she has a daughter. In the book, she actually has a husband as well, um, and perhaps even a couple of sons. But uh, in the in the musical, she has a daughter, and she's kind of she loves her daughter, but there's also a hope that her daughter will be a ticket for for the two of them out of the islands and perhaps to America. So it's very Miss Saigon in that way, except there's no helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so they do end up meeting a, a lieutenant uh, who, yeah. Yale educated. A Yale, yeah. yeah, or Princeton. Or Princeton, sorry. Princeton yeah. educated lieutenant who Bloody Mary manages to lure to Bali High, which is where they live. And they, the lieutenant and her daughter, Liat, fall in love, and they become lovers for a while. He visits the island, but finds that he can't marry her. So that's the, that's the tragedy of this piece, which I actually appreciate. I thought it, you know, it's, it's, it's very bold and brave, uh, for Rodgers and Hammerstein, and who who wrote the book? Do we Josh know? Logan. Josh Logan. For them to have written a piece like this at at the time that they had written it, mm -hmm. um, it was it was bold for them to bring up these kinds of issues and to put this kind of a there are there there are more pieces of tragedy mm -hmm. in in the piece that I won't say so that you all can come and see it. <laughs> well, you bring up a really interesting point about that because there is a certain amount of telling the story that's there even when it's not happy and pretty and and what we might normally associate with musicals or the golden age of musicals right. and and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you um, how you made those character choices along the way, and how you stayed true to the souls of your characters, mm -hmm. even in those places where 
it might have been easier, more convenient to just look for the for the rosier side of things. <laughs> well, I think that's a big trap of musical theater. Um, it's just you know skip through the drama and get to the next song. Um, but especially in a piece like this that I think is really, I, I think I've heard it described as a, a musical play, which I like um, because it's not, you know, West Side Story. There's no sharks and jets having their little showdown um, dance-off kind of piece. It's, there really is important story being told. And um, you're doing the writers a disservice if you skip over it or if you, you don't, fully invest in those moments that are are less rosy and are um you know a little tougher to stomach um i think that's that's one of the brilliant things about this piece is that there are so many hit songs everything in there like you sort of trick people into thinking with a show like this because there are so many difficult moments that these characters experience um and then sing about um that you get wrapped up in the music and you don't realize that you're you're doing more work than you usually have to in a musical as opposed to not not avoiding the the moments that are the darker the sides darker of sides. your character mm -hmm. yeah yeah well one thing that Brad taught a long time ago he's he he shared Something about um, something that that Sondheim taught, or a director of one of Sondheim's pieces, and I, I'm referring to Sondheim, even though this is Rodgers and Hammerstein. There's a mentor connection, right? There. Exactly. Yeah. There's a mentor connection there, but he would they would say to uh, sing the words and speak the songs. So it was like you know that there's something about um, at least for me about thinking about the piece first and foremost as an actor mm -hmm. and just seeing Bloody Mary as a whole person. And I love the journey that she takes. She gets to really show her humanity um, and to then kind of build in, like, why does she act certain ways in front of the sailors? And she seems like a loopy doop. And then she sings this, you know, almost shamanic type of a song. And then, you know, then she goes into her behavior in the second act uh, where, where she falls into some rage. And, um, <laughs> well, now I'm thinking of another thing that uh, Brad lovingly said about me, which was, oh, well, Christine has just the right amount of crazy for this part. So <laughs> I think that also lends. And that, you know, in, in a lot of ways, when you're on an island like that, everybody falls into a certain kind of a crazy. You know, there is, it, I think that's what, feeds everyone's stakes is that there is this kind of inner desperation and mm, that that's a good word for it and that also that these clowny characters come where you know even nelly comes into a clowny character mm -hmm. at some point um because we need to um deal with that deal with it yeah yeah so i think the clowning aspect of this piece is is really quite fun and it does it does address the harder aspects of of the piece and that right. you know it's kind of that like that song smile smile though your heart is aching you know <laughs> yeah because that's that's yeah. how we as people deal mm -hmm. with stress is with humor mm -hmm. absolutely um i think that's yeah that's absolutely in the play and less so in mishner's book i think but um yeah mishner's book is pretty raw. intense yeah yeah <laughs>
Let me ask you this question, Allie, because mm-hmm. you talked about the sense of boredom that people feel and mm-hmm. waiting for something to happen. It's so present in Mishner's description of the soldiers. Yes. And it seems like on one level, he's really interested in capturing the ordinary, the mm-hmm. mundane. And yet the characters, particularly, the, well, not just particularly, I think all of the characters that he's writing about, but the American soldiers that he's writing about mm-hmm. are the ones who are extraordinary, who are doing things out of the ordinary. Cable, Billis, mm-hmm. Nellie. Um, and so what qualities do you think that Nellie has that make her unique? Well, one of the things, and this is one of my favorite lines that I have in the play, um, as one of my teachers would call it, a money line, um, is that Nellie's intense sense of optimism. Um, there's this uh, moment right before I sing Cockeyed Optimist um, where I say, you know, I don't think it's the end of the world like everyone else thinks, um, which just speaks to, I mean, World War II, people did think that this was going to be the end of their bombs that had never before existed and people thought the world was going to end um and so just to have someone who in the face of all this and literally out in the middle of i mean not directly in a combat zone but in a place that could any minute now (laughs) turn into uh you know a place where bullets are flying um to have someone with that sense of we're gonna make it we're everything's gonna like everything we're doing is is working for a greater good and i think that's one of the lovely things about her as a nurse and that's just an archetype that i associate with with caregivers um is just that that ability to even in the face of intense boredom and even in the face of of that desperation of of being stuck and not knowing you know what can i i mean if ali was stuck on an island in the south pacific i would be going nuts because i'm such a i have to do things um but someone who has the patience to and and the faith that everything we're doing is for the best and everything um that's happening is getting us towards the next you know the next goal the next I think that's a really remarkable trait to have. And that's, I mean, if I was stuck on an island, I would need someone like that around. What I'm struck by, though, is that there is this view of the mundane. So there's even, you know, when the children sing Dite Moi. And then there's Nothing Like a Dame, where the guys are just on the beach. And then there's even Wash That Man Right Out of My Hair, just that these girls are on the beach. What we don't see are the moments where the guys fly into the airplanes and are inside, you know, the rough areas where the enemy is. You don't, mm. you hear about them, but you don't actually see them on stage. So I think that's, that's pretty interesting that we're really painting this, this picture of, of what it's like to be in the everyday, not only for the people, the kind of the locals that live there, but for the military that are are settling there. And I think that's that's part of what made this place so popular and it, and I think probably part of the goals of the the writers is because I mean we haven't we haven't brought up the big uh, big political issue that this play takes on, but mm-hmm. I think that's part of it is 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 putting racism in the mouths of ordinary people. Yes. Knowing mm. that that's the audience that's coming to see it. I think that's an incredible way to get a message across subtly. You know, Definitely. these aren't the kings and queens. These aren't the generals mm-hmm. and the the presidents that we're dealing with. These are 
the most ordinary of ordinary people, and that's the audience that was coming to see it. I think that's really important to notice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I definitely wanted to talk about the issue of race, and yeah. since you've since you've opened Segwayed it up, right into it. yeah, I, I am wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you think this piece is trying to say about race, or what you take from it about about race and racism and race relations, whether it's historical or whether it's how we view it today in a contemporary context mm-hmm. or or whatever. Well, I think South Pacific definitely gets romanticized, um, even around race, in that I don't often see a very clear distinction between the islanders. So these are people that are, because I don't, I don't actually, it's, is it the Marshall Islands? So sure. where the where the actual island is in South Pacific, there are people that are from oh. that area. I think they're probably from Tonga. And People from Tonga are different from people who are Tonkin. Those are people from Vietnam. I don't often see those distinctions really being made, although there is a clear distinction between the children and Bloody Mary and her daughter. But I feel like just kind of with my own sense of being around South Pacific, the musical, for a while, that that always gets a bit fuzzy. And then... And then there's a reference to a black man or two black men. Yeah. You know, and that they're, they, that's kind of this ethereal thing. Um, and then what else do we have in terms of, uh, I guess, racial distinctions? I guess those are really the three, mm-hmm. the three groups. And so I, I, I wanted to, when I was first approaching Bloody Mary, I really wanted to see how how much of her Vietnamese heritage I could bring forward in the role. Because even in the book, uh, they refer to Tonkin as being from China, but it isn't. And I think that was just a, a viewpoint that was spoken by one of Michener's characters. Um, so again, there's a distinction between China and Vietnam, obviously. And I, I really wanted to explore that. And um, there were some some extremes happening in my accent um, because the accent tends to be a bit monotonous um, in in the Vietnamese accent so I had to pull back on that and she's actually become much more of an islander which I guess makes sense because Bloody Mary is dealing with sailors and having to speak above them and needing to get their attention so she will definitely draw from her gut more and also she is also interacting with some of these other islanders. And then, oh, yeah, and then there's the French presence. Oh, yeah. So um, there's a, there, there are a lot of cultures that are, it's much like Hawaii, but there, there are a lot of cultures that are just kind of mixing up in this that, you know, I don't know if it, if it there is a bit of a spirit of welcome around that uh, racially. Um, and yet there are these, these issues, but it just, I, I've always found it so curious that Nellie's character would have such a strong reaction to this Polynesian woman Mm -hmm. that, you know, her potential husband would be with. And yet how would she be around, you know, the others? Like we always found it, or Allie and I always found it curious that, Bloody Mary and Nellie 
have never met in the play yeah. until yeah. the second <laughs> act. Right. So, so almost like the last 15 minutes of the show. Yeah. yeah. Bloody um, Mary's infamous. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. everybody should know who she is. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah, and everybody would know who, who Ensignelli Forbush is as right. well. I'm the big so. entertainer on the island. Yeah. Put together Christmas shows or Thanksgiving, <laughs> Thanksgiving rather. Thanksgiving shows. Um, that doesn't really um, speak too too directly to the the point of race. I mean, I well, think that it's it interesting helps, that you know. Yeah, it helps set the context for it, and mm-hmm. and what I'm hearing you say is how much um, richer and and more nuanced the island culture is than right. it's portrayed in the book, or at least understood by many of the characters in the book. Yeah. And I think we see characters in the show too, who sort mm-hmm. of lump. South Pacific Islanders all together right, yeah. when in fact there's a lot of there's a lot of distinction and um, uniqueness to each of the characters right. and groups of people and that that in itself is sort of a takeaway that we have to be aware of when mm-hmm. we're seeing the show. Yeah, we don't all just look alike. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that and that there's an important statement to be made about that. Right. That I think in 1948 <laughs> is certainly not the prevailing norm or way of thinking about race in the United States or around the world. The notion of there being an other right. that you can sort of clump together. Well, and then there's also the Japanese and mm-hmm. that the Japanese are the enemy. And oh, how, yeah. yeah, that's interesting because they're all pretty... There's there's Asians and Islanders, and um, mm-hmm. it doesn't deal with the black white racism issue directly. Mm-hmm. It de- it it deals with everything else. You know our subtle our subtle racisms, our everyday racisms, mm-hmm. our you know Which the racisms is- that we tend to think are okay. Yeah, which I think is probably what made this musical more palatable for popular audiences in 1949, um, you know, totally pre-civil rights movement. Um, but I, it's, I, I just, I think it's such a genius way to bring such a touchy, touchy subject into the public consciousness. And um, I mean, the, the, the big point of the show and the interview that uh, I, I don't know if you've quoted the, have we quoted that Oscar Hammerstein line about um, the song, um, that Cable sings called "You've Got to You've Be got Carefully, to be carefully taught. taught." Right, um, and critics initially, when that show, when the show was in previews, said to cut that song. Like everything's great, but just oh. I don't know. That song makes us nervous. And I think that song's brilliant. It is, and well, that's brilliant. what Hammerstein said. Was he laughed and at the producer, whoever it was, who told him that, and said, "If we cut that song, we have no show." Exactly. Um, yeah, I think that song is like the whole point. It, yeah, it's it's definitely yeah. the the cornerstone of, of the message of yeah, the show. I think that is what um, makes Cable who he is, and what mm-hmm. makes Nellie who she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And or, so, speaking of of songs in the show and things that are cut and and not. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> see where we're going with this. Yeah. Um, there's so one of the more iconic songs from this show is this song "Happy Talk." Mm-hmm. which is not in this production yes. and was a deliberate choice the director made coming in 
wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. We've had him in and he's talked about it as well, but I'd be interested in hearing your perspectives about that as people in the show um, and and what you think that does to the to the story, mm-hmm. how it how it changes it and how that affects your the shape of your characters in the show. Well, I when I did the show with Brad <clears throat> so many years ago, <laughs> um, Happy Talk was cut then too. So Brad had has always held the idea that Happy Talk, he's done a lot of research on that song and um, and he obviously has articulated this much better than I will articulate this now, um, that in in some ways happy talk is i don't i wouldn't say gratuitous it it's more that it is it's fluff it's fluff around the urgency of the situation and that it makes too much light of of bloody mary's proposal and so and so just by her speaking to cable that Brad felt that that was enough and that it it makes it more direct and in fact playing it it really does it's mm-hmm. it's nice to be able to play that through line to just you know hold the desperation of the moment and to you know play those play the ways into to Cable's heart and to to plea for his hand on behalf of her daughter and to just drive through that into the rage that comes through um, rather than breaking it up through a song. At the same time, as an actress, I would really like to, uh, I'd like to to try doing Bloody Mary again with the song and seeing what that does. Because sometimes, kind of in this idea of the clowning, the smile, though your heart is aching, there's something about making light of something and then being slapped in the face that then really gives you a really, it really buys you um, an even bigger rage. So I'd be interested in seeing what that, what that would do. Um, I, I did kind of, um, this is just on the side, but I, I felt that happy talk needed to be performed. Yes. Oh, this is brilliant. I was going to ask you about this. If you didn't talk about it. Oh, Christine did this wonderful (laughs) jazz cover of happy talk for one of our reach cabarets a couple weeks back. And it was awesome. It's so good. Put it on your CD. And, uh, and the girl who plays my daughter, Liad and the boy who plays cable, both sang the background vocals for the song. It was awesome. It was pretty fun. Yeah. It was yeah. pretty fun. It was pretty excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also love, you know, just speaking about that song about, you know, you've got to have a dream if you don't have a dream. How are you going to make a dream come true? Um, that's I, kind of that optimism. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's it's that's a very Nellie Forbush yeah. type of, it almost seems like that should be Nellie's song. Wow. <laughs> I never thought about that. That's really that is yeah, a it's line. a it's it's a total optimism because Bloody Mary doesn't really speak in that kind of optimism. Hmm. Really, she's just hustling. So <laughs> she's just 
yeah, she's really just hustling, and either that or she's weaving a magic spell around someone with mm-hmm. a with a head. <laughs> <laughs> so to to hear her be that optimistic, so in then I guess in some ways she's also speaking about her dream mm. and her daughter's dream of you know mm-hmm. coming to the states and want. And the thing is, is that Capel does get convinced. He just his first reaction was that I can't. I can't marry Liot. And, you know, that could have become a conversation. Then Bloody Mary could have said, well, you know, well, why not, young man? You know, I mean, it it could have become a conversation, but she took it as this big, big offense. And he actually, his heart was still very much with Liot. So. Oh, I guess one other thought that's just, it is sort of, creepy the way that song infantilizes Liat. Yeah. I think that's Yes. That's a a lot of a lot of Liat's a lot and a lot of people actually will say, Oh, I'm so glad you got Happy Talk. I hate that song. People have some pretty strong hate reactions <laughs> to that song. But it, and it's probably because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well it's interesting. People do, but a lot right. of people are are very regretful that the song isn't in the show True. prior to going to see it. And I can't tell you the number of people I've talked to this summer oh. who feel that way going in mm-hmm. and coming out feel like there's so much more clarity about what the show is doing yeah. and what the story is yeah. without the song. Yeah. So, And then I think part of it too, because if the song is in there, I mean, obviously there's lots of reasons around, you know, slowing down that moment and, and the making light of it, I think is a really interesting point. Um, but also going, if, if it does infantilize Liat with that like weird choreography that usually accompanies it, um, then it makes the problem less obvious about what the problem with Liat is. Right. It's that oh she's too childish, she's too right. You know, Good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's that's another. It it clouds the point, and I think it, it's really you can't miss it in this production. It yeah. is there for the witnessing. Um, yeah, so I think that's, although I would love to hear Christine sing it because I love to hear Christine sing. But, <laughs> like I said, put it on your CD. It's gonna be good. So I, I'd love to close by asking you each, it, it's a big question, but it's a personal question. And so I hope it doesn't feel like you have to speak too vastly about okay. this piece. Um, as you think about South Pacific, and what you take away from it. Mm-hmm. What is the what is the nugget? What is the thing that when you sort of distill it down, it feels like that's what this is about. That's what I'm walking away with this from. It's beautiful what love, how love can change people. And I think that's a that's a big a big takeaway for me is that love is transformative. Love will make you heroic love will also make you a coward love can change you like 360 change you and you see that in these characters yeah yeah i also think um i love the idea that it's never too late to change um my particular catharsis comes very near to the end of the show and um i mean Cable, unfortunately, it is a little too late for him because some circumstances beyond his control take place or uh, happen. But um, for Nelly, it's it's a really late discovery 
um, and especially having made up her mind so firmly so many times, um, the fact that she can still go back and sit and reconsider, I think is, is really important and, and a really important message, you know, even, even people who think they've, especially I think people who think they've discovered what the right answer is, um, that to still be open to change and to still be open to, um, to new information is, is a wonderful place to be and doesn't make you wrong or bad. It just makes you a better learner, a better, um, student. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, student of the world. Something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, ultimately it's sort of a more complete human being. Yeah. 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 I, I want to say too, just, just one, one last thing for me, but since we've spoken a lot about the mundane, <laughs> There is something so wonderful about the portrait of the mundane and how we as youth or we as romantics want so desperately to leave our mundane. We really think that we need this excitement. We need a jolt out. But in actuality, what we, our peace in life comes from settling into the mundane. Because when we arrive at that very last moment of South Pacific, it is... What is so sweet and what makes us, what makes me tear up, is that that the two lovers return to the mundane. And it's it's that quiet end that is our potentially our bliss. That's lovely. Mm-hmm. She says, waving her hands. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Allie, Christine, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. You're awesome. We We love you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to another episode of the Play On Podcast. Be sure to go back and listen to past interviews on the festival webpage. Check out the latest episode released every Friday with your favorite directors, actors, and designers from our 2015 season.